Ada Waptamunk at, at like at the at the bare bones is about coexistence, and that's literally all Indigenous people have been asking for from the very beginning of contact. Can our ways exist alongside yours? Can we not assimilate or integrate everything? Can we do this side by side? Can we build things side by side with our beliefs and your beliefs? And if you are uncomfortable, that's probably a good thing. And to think about why you're uncomfortable and to to sit in that as opposed to go back to your comfort zone. Welcome to Coastal Connections, Stories from the Atlantic. I'm your host, Dr. Sandra Eager, and in this volume, we continue to share perspectives and focus on stories of resilience and innovation in Atlantic Canada. Coastal Connections is a production of Coastal Roots Radio, produced in partnership with the University of Guelph and Memorial University of Newfoundland, Grenfell Campus. Today's episode is part one of two, exploring and learning about Eduwaptamumk, known as Two-Eyed Seeing. Over the last few years, I've noticed an increase in the use of this term within academia, as well as by organizations who are learning how to work with and alongside communities. I've always wanted to learn more about this Mi'kmaq worldview or principle that is greater than any theory or framework. This will not be a how-to episode, as no single person can tell you how to understand, embody, do, eduoptimumk as it is practiced separately and uniquely under the tenets of being open to listening to the ideas of others without bias. That would change everything, wasn't it? If everyone could think like that, to say, I'd like to help everyone as much as possible with my actions. The lived experience that we have impacts everything, right? Research, our analysis, our discussion on how we do research. I had to practice it without knowing what it was. I've had the pleasure of having a series of informative and inspiring discussions with Ivan White and Brady Reed to understand the origins of Eduwaptamumk, as well as to hear about each of their lived experiences and journeys. Throughout the episode, our guests reflect on and emphasize the importance, the important role of self-reflection, the important role of self-reflection and identity. For any researcher, teacher, friend, ally, anyone who is willing to be a bit uncomfortable and to to look within and to sit and reflect on their positionality in this world is very welcome. And I hope that these discussions will have as positive impact on you as they have had on me. So let's meet Ivan. His passion for communications and storytelling, as well as his culture, made him a true pleasure to speak with. My name is Ivan J. White. I hail from the Mi'kmaq community of Flat Bay. I was pushed into being an emissary for my culture, heritage, and people. I seek to combine my experience in audio and communications with my passion for Mi'kmaq community and to create or tell authentic stories that contribute to community pride and progress. I've been fortunate to meet Brady in person and have worked with him on a number of files. His enthusiasm and eloquence always made working fun and fulfilling, and hearing him reflect on his cultural identity and some stories from his journey was no different. 
so my name is Brady Reed. Uh, I am a PhD student currently at the University of Waterloo in the Sustainability Management Program. And I am born and raised here on the West Coast in Cornerbrook. I specifically moved home to do my master's to work in community and, and with communities on certain on their priorities and wanted to shift um, away from me as a researcher to finding research questions uh, into sort of, you know, obviously community-based collaborative uh, research, which isn't a new framework, but wanted to work with that with some rural communities here um, and specifically with some Mi'kmaq communities. Brady and Ivan come from different backgrounds and each offer a unique perspective on this important topic, which really was our only objective of this episode. I came to Edoaptimunk uh, along a very personal journey, if, if that makes sense. And um, I have to say that my perspective and my interpretation of Edoaptimunk may be very different in relation to its creator, uh, Elder Albert Marshall and Medina Marshall. Eduoptimunk was first introduced in this volume in episode one, Come Together. There, we learned that it was coined by elders Albert and Medina Marshall, who explained the term as learning to see from one eye with the strengths of indigenous knowledges and ways of knowing, and from the other eye with the strengths of Western knowledges and ways of knowing, and to use both of these eyes together for the benefit of all. So from what I understand, Edewaptimumk is, uh, for me, empowering. It means that I do not have to relinquish what I believe in just to understand or move forward with something. And I think that's, like, for me, in my interpretation of Edewaptimumk, super important. It's it's probably the most important thing because I come to Edewaptimunk from a framework built on a tripod. Basically, if I want to go to my, my film experience, it's built on a tripod of three, the tenants, I'll call them, of, of how I see and interpret Edewaptimunk, which is collaboration. And that means work together towards a common goal. Everyone lends a hand to their ability and their capacity in progress towards that goal and that goal is for the benefit of everyone and then there's inclusion which allows people and ideas to be heard and explored impartially and without bias another novel concept sharing at its base means that you won't expect a return for your investment beyond what you've put into the relationship and that's essential that's what creates community in in my culture and that is the foundation of positive, enriching, long-term relationships, sharing. And these are these are the the reason that I I, I say those three things are my understanding of Edawatamunk is because, like I said, I grew up in a world where it I had to practice it without knowing what it was. We'll learn more about how they first crossed paths, forming both a professional relationship and a lifelong friendship, as well as how each of them have experienced and navigated Eduoptimunk. I was working for the Flat Bay Band when I met Brady. I was in the tourism department, and Kellyanne Butler, the Indigenous student liaison at Grenville Campus, emailed me and said, I have a student who wants to come out and start his thesis. And I was like, 
wow, okay, we're going to start a thesis with some student. And she's like, he's a really sweet guy. I can't wait for you to meet him. So before Brady came, I set him up with a time for a meeting, and I planned on getting Elder White to attend the meeting. We all sat in the room together for a minute. Brady explained who he was. And Uncle Calvin said, oh, yes, that's the this line from this group of people. And I left. I left Brady alone with Elder White. Totally intentionally because it's sink or swim. So if he felt it was it was super important for him to come up and, and create this work with Flat Bay, the community, then he would do an admirable job in front of the community elder in basically pitching it. Did an excellent job because he has a thesis written in collaboration with Flat Bay. Now, let's hear Brady's side of the story about when they met and understand a little bit more about how Brady started his journey to Eduwatamunk. I guess my story of meeting Ivan begins many years before meeting Ivan uh, because it really was a, a bit of a self-reflective period of my life. Uh, the Halibu uh, Mi'kmaq First Nation is here and uh, was established in 2011. With that came a lot of folks who were pulling together specific pieces of uh, evidence to sort of prove lineages and indigenous ancestry and connections to history and to become status Indians under the Halibu Mi'kmaq First Nation. And, and my family did the same. And so in 2011, when I was 16, almost 17, I was given a status card. And I say given because I basically was given um, a status card, not knowing much about it, of course. And being a 17-year-old didn't care that much about it. I'm sure there's lots of empathetic 17-year-olds, but I was not necessarily the most. Uh, and so I accepted it as is, and I didn't really think too much about it. Went to school, my undergrad, with the card, sort of with, you know, that piece of my new identity. For the most, you know, vast majority of my childhood and, and growing up, um, I was a white kid, settler kid, so I didn't have similar lived experiences. And so, but at the time, again, as a 17-year-old, I didn't have the mental capacity to reflect on things like that. Through that, I spent some time reflecting on who I was in, in that relationship and, and reading more about Edouaptimunk and um, being, again, a new scholar in that, um, trying to understand how I fit into the equation and what this status card meant and what all this thing, you know, how everything fit in, eventually recognizing that lineage is important. Sure, ancestry is really important and recognizing that's really important. But in a position of a research relationship or a professional relationship or you know, in that space, I can't co-opt or assume an Indigenous researcher identity because if you read Indigenous scholarship and Indigenous research and look at those authors and, and people. I'm not part of that group in a sense of my lived experience and my, my upbringing and my worldview. And that ultimately led me to sort of, you know, reaffirming myself as a settler scholar. When I think of Eduard Monk and when I think of these ways of doing research and these approaches to inquiry, I guess if you want to say, it really builds a different foundation. And so without understanding who we are in the relationship, which is a lot more than I think many researchers are willing to do that, that self searching, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> and it's, it's certainly um, can be quite disruptive to your own 
sort of understanding of yourself. But I find in those relationships, if you don't come to it with the openness and honesty of who you are and positioning yourself, and that even includes, you know, uncomfortable conversations around if you're a researcher who is, let's say, a tenured faculty and you're, you know, you're making X amount of dollars on this, you know, research projects with communities and, and particularly with indigenous groups, you know, are based on these power relationships between researchers with big salaries, because that's typically what they have, and communities that typically don't gain much out of those relationships or haven't in the past. And so those realities have to be recognized, and that sort of comes back to that positionality piece is being able to position yourself and recognize those realities is where you'll see that. Um, and uh, Sean Wilson, who's a, a Indigenous scholar, talks about this common ground, trying to find that common ground between um, those relationships and, and a lot of that is through the openness and through that positionality. Being able to position yourself and recognize power dynamics between groups and trying to change the research narrative so that communities benefit from projects is a really important point. Next, Brady and Ivan take turns filling in the details of how Brady was introduced to Ivan's community. Research doesn't necessarily look like research sometimes you know at one point I was serving a Christmas dinner at the community hall in Flat Bay and just you know getting my face out there and and I remember you know serving dinner and people in the community were like who the heck is this guy that's serving me dinner and then the vice chief Johan got up at the end and said oh this is this person and this is what he's doing and this is why we're doing it and then you know so it's it was um one of those things where it wasn't a research activity in the sense that I wasn't taking notes and, and writing, you know, it was just serving dinner. It's also important to note that when you were introduced, it was at the end. So everyone had a, uh, no handle on who you were exactly, unless you told them. And you were given a clean slate to look at how you wanted that interaction to happen. Were you going to say to everyone who you handed the plate, I'm Brady, I'm the researcher, I'm Brady, I'm the researcher, I'm Brady, I'm the researcher. It was all up to you. And that's a testament to how good you are, is that you didn't do the path of least resistance there. The path of least resistance would have been to say, I'm Brady, I'm a researcher, I'm Brady, I'm a researcher. That's my relationship with all the people in this room. You didn't do that. And it's easy to take the path of least resistance. I've taken it before. Everyone's taken it before. And it's really easy to do. But does that give you the richest results? We know now that it does not. You are a, an example of that. Everyone who I've worked with at, uh, at Grenfell is a, an exceptional example of that. The people who don't take the, the path of least resistance, who create all this extra work around a what they feel is a, a smaller piece of work, are doing it the right way. Because it's about what you leave behind. If I hung you out to dry, so did Chief Joanne Miles, <laughs> which is great. It's, you were you were meant to build the the relationship the way you felt it should be built, and that was what everyone was giving you the option to do. I really love that story. Those moments and opportunities of engagement with communities, research partners, and participants have been my most cherished research moments. During my master's fieldwork in Dominican Republic, I remember being invited to a collaborator's daughter's Christmas pageant, and during my doctoral research, I sold hot dogs and hamburgers at the annual Bass Derby, held on the Shubenacadie River in Nova Scotia. 
before ever doing an interview with that community. At a recent summit held by the Pescatumacati at Skudik, who are First Nations around the Lower Bay of Fundy and Gulf of Maine. Chief Akaji talked about moving at the speed of trust. This message transcends research, of course, but it speaks volumes and truly determines how our presence as researchers can impact our work, but also enrich our experiences. So that, that actually leads to uh, the concept of Umsutnogama positioned at the heart of Monk for me. So Umsutnogama is the concept that uh, of all my relations, we are related to everything and everything is related to us, interconnectedness. And after hearing uh, other people speak of uh, two-eyed seeing, they, they, they don't use the, the Mi'kmaq word for two-eyed seeing, they say two-eyed seeing. What I've heard is that there is the concept of Umsutnogama or all my relationships all across Turtle Island. And they all consider it a fundamental part of two-eyed seeing. When they see two-eyed seeing and they practice it on their lands or territory or in their communities, they seem to draw an inference to Nusutnogama, all my relationships in their own way. Everyone does. And I think that's I think that's really cool because I didn't read something that said I couldn't that I could couldn't be an impartial observer. All that I all that I read any time that I was doing research or looking up researchers, the research of others, is that that is something that people really do believe exists. You can be impartial and not affect anything in your observance, but that's not true in my experience. We have way more connections before and after and during something that we need to slow down and actually reflect on those connections so we don't harm and so we can actually go forward with the best of both worlds, which is what I really like about Ada Wakamonk. It, it, it leads me back to a, one of my favorite Star Trek episodes, the best of both worlds. <laughs> I think to add to some of those points that you made, Ivan, uh, around sort of the best of both worlds is, again, recognizing from a settler perspective particularly that that coming together of western science and indigenous worldviews or um our knowledges isn't a marriage of equality in a sense that one has essentially oppressed the other thus far typically traditionally and so that is forefront in that relationship and and going forward and so the word integration can be a bit abrasive when it comes to thinking about two-eyed seeing and and adooptimum because i think it just harkens back to sort of western science and western ways of of doing things and ontologies epistemologies whatever big words you want to use sort of dominating in that um in that sense and that the integration ends up becoming what ivan was saying uh assimilation where it just is like a pretty box wrapped up that looks like two-eyed seeing or adooptimum but it ends up just being you know, Western science pushing forward and uh, and indigenous worldviews and, and knowledges being peppered in or or, or chosen tokenized. when it's tokenized and chosen when it's easy, right? Because that's the other thing is we tend to find the easy road and, and, and go down that, especially when it takes time. Because oftentimes in academia and scholarship, there's deadlines, 
There's uh, expectations, deliverables. Brady illustrates further that the journey is not fast and easy. And he explains that it's much more than peppering in different knowledge types or simply acknowledging that other views exist. It's a commitment to actively participate in deconstructing your own worldview, to learn about and accept others, and to move forward with both in mind. Ada Wapta the bare bones is about coexistence. And that's literally all Indigenous people have been asking for from the very beginning of contact. Pre-colonial times, we coexisted. There were wars. It doesn't doesn't really have that much of an effect on today's world. But since contact, all we've asked for is coexistence. Can our ways exist alongside yours? Can we not assimilate or integrate everything? Can we do this side by side? Can we build things side by side with our beliefs and your beliefs. From my understanding of Ada Wapdemonk, everyone who considers themselves an ally or an Indigenous person should be pushing people who don't think that's a possibility to happen because we continuously go down the path of least resistance, which equals you don't listen to all the voices. All we've been asking for is not revenge, it's not vengeance. We're not looking to to get one up on anyone. As a people, as indigenous people, we're not looking for any of that. What we're looking for, mutually beneficial coexistence. Two White Seeing and Ebdo Optimunk isn't built through lit reviews and systematic, you know, these sort of processes. It's with people and you need relationships and you need um, those connections. And that doesn't happen in an expeditious way, typically. Right. Like it's not a, a quick process to to gain someone's trust, first of all, and to gain someone's understanding, to be on the same page. So those sort of things take time and everyone's different. Some people it may take years. Some people it may take a month or two. I, like I, There's no right or you know, rule of thumb there. But some folks and, and some of the tensions that I see with people who are, are sort of trying to or interpreting Edoptimumk in specific ways or other or their own ways um, that may be just looking for, you know, how do I plug this framework into my paper or how do I, you know, they're year two into their master's and they're just thinking about how I can frame this, um, that which does happen in academia and scholarship often. Like it's not unheard of to take a lens that you want to look through, you know, once you're at your analysis stage, for example, if you want to look through this specific lens, I'd say you can do a bunch of reading on it and learn about it and then apply that lens to your analysis. And then that then shapes the results and the discussion in your paper or whatever it is you're doing. But you can't get to that stage in your research and then say, oh, I'm going to apply a two-eyed seeing or an optimum lens. It inherently starts at the very concept development phase, if I can steal a, a phrase from the Munn-Rig policy. You know, it as soon as the idea pops in your head or as soon or or even in conversation with people that you have relationships with, you know, with indigenous groups and other folks that the idea blossoms, I'll say, or, you know, the idea is born, um, you know, that's when it's, I'm not going to say implemented, but that's, you know, that's when Ada Wamtamug really starts, I guess. It's not one of those 
conceptual frameworks or theoretical frameworks that you can just apply when you get to your data analysis or when you get to, you know, it's much larger than that and requires things that's harder like self-reflection and like positionality and trying to understand who you are in the relationship and, and coming to terms with, oh, geez, I'm going to, you know, me getting a PhD out of this relationship really puts a tension between us as, you know, and, and that needs to be clear and and it's awkward conversations to have sometimes, you know, to, to understand that um, you are, in you know, innately getting benefit out of this relationship as a PhD student, getting a PhD, getting a doctoral degree, and that you have to recognize what, you know, think about what is the community or the group that I'm working with getting out of this? Anything? Question mark? Because sometimes it, you know, it's, it's possible to not get anything out of it, which has been the course of history when it comes to research, you know, cross-cultural between Indigenous and non-Indigenous groups. And from my perspective, the things that you said before you said self-reflection and relationship building were hard. So the data collection and the trying to figure out what the data meant was much more difficult for me than creating relationships with people that I wanted to to gather info from or or thinking about how I would make those connections. And then when during those connections, uh, allowing them to be mutually beneficial, those were the easy things for me. And I'm like, I'm really surprised that, that, uh, this is the other side that I don't get to hear about. Basically this, this, this conversation is allowing me to reflect on the fact that the things that I find easy, the reason I don't call myself an academic is because these things don't exist inherently inside academia. The, the parts that he found hard are the parts that I enjoy the most because they are my path of least resistance. Making relationships with people and, and talking at length, which is something that everyone needs to be prepared to do if you're going to follow a research impacting Indigenous group policy. You can't come and sit at a table with a preconceived notion that if you speak the loudest, the longest, and uh, uh, pounding the table at all the right times that you are correct. You need to sit and listen. That's why you have two ears and one mouth, right? And I, I think that if you can marry those two ideas, then we've got a great example of Ada Walkmonk literally happening inside this conversation. And it's, I, I don't think it's hard because you say it's hard. I think it's hard because systematically it's been taught that that's the hard things to do. So you leave that off. There's no other uh, function of research that tells you that you need to have a relationship with anything besides the work itself. There is this need to be intersectional there. So it isn't about looking at how you approach things through, you know, a researcher lens versus uh, a settler lens versus a non-academic lens. Um, as a as a person, you know, for myself as a settler researcher um, who's a PhD student, who's early career, um, all those pieces kind of come together for me when it comes to uh, Ado Optimum. And when you look at reflecting and and doing that, uh, the groundwork of building those relationships and maintaining those relationships, I think um, having that intersectional lens in mind that you're not just an academic, that you're not just uh, an early career researcher, that you're not just, you know, you are all of these things. Um, especially from, I think, as a settler, like that is important to kind of come to the table with because those 
are pieces of yourself that um, that make you more honest in that relationship. So it makes you um, that much more vulnerable when you're up, you know, come to the table with those pieces together versus thinking, okay, well, in this space, I'm a researcher or in this space, I'm a non-academic person or, you know, it's, it's sort of you're all those things at once. And and to build on what Brady just said, like we're, the default is singular. The default is your way and you just think about something and you do it. And then we have people who make the mistake of thinking that you need indigenous knowledge to exist uh, separately or in an assimilated, assimilated fashion. So they take it and they insert it, but it's not coming from it's coming from a book or it's coming from something that you heard somewhere. You're not actually creating relationship with an indigenous person or with a Mi'kmaq person to find mutual coexistence of knowledge before a decision. And I think that's like sort of uh, uh, if there could be a Webster's definition that was like way too long, maybe an encyclopedia definition instead of a dictionary definition, that's like closer to what it, it actually means. It's like mutual coexistence, collaboration, inclusion, sharing. It's all of those things. And like Brady said, sometimes that can be super uncomfortable for people because they want to default to status quo or the other sort of status quo. There is this richness in Adoptimum that it, it doesn't categorize these aspects of ourselves and, and parts of ourselves as separate as opposed to coming together through those um kind of insider outsider um distinctions and and kind of that muddying and blurring of lines and and sort of having that uh, coming together really i think is what helps enrich research through this process and 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 again um going back to relationships which i think is 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 key um helps build that um that rapport and 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 it's dynamic and it's fluid and so how can we meaningfully acknowledge and accept all of these pieces? I know I'm guilty of suppressing different parts of myself when I say things like, I wear so many hats, as if I can simply take one off and put on the next. I'm a settler, I'm a researcher, I'm a woman, an activist, a friend, an explorer. I force myself to change mindsets and perspectives depending on the title I'm supposed to be or perspective or expertise that's required at that time. They all coexist within me, and my experiences with each piece will inform how I respond, no matter what the context is, and if it's intentional or not. Remember Brady's initial visit to community? He shares where he is in his journey now, as well as a few lessons he's learned along the way. The journey from that moment, that sort of initial engaging piece, and to see the difference from then to now, you know, maybe five, six years later, continuing those relationships and maintaining that that connection with folks that I had worked with over so much time. It's interesting to even think back to that moment of like, I remember being in that space and, and not knowing anybody, essentially, and sort of doing my best to kind of get my face out there and, and get a bit of recognition um, and, and meet folks as often as I could to now, you know, almost feeling like home myself when I go into community and, and to attend events there now and, and, you know, put my camper in someone's backyard and, and spend the weekend um, and feel comfortable and doing that. There's no, there's no recipe. There's no such thing as this is how you build relationships, you know, go and do it. It's, it, it's different for everyone. It requires 
you to be, you know, yourself, authentic in that. And as well, it takes time, like years, you know, and, and people don't necessarily recognize that. And in sort of the traditional academic setting where there's deadlines and funding and requirements, that doesn't neatly fit. And so that's where as this sort of alternative or or different pathway into optimum really emphasizes this the importance of those activities that do take time and that do so the, I think there's a bit of a shift there we're seeing now that folks are recognizing the importance of these kind of what some might see as you know menial or or otherwise activities um but really starting to recognize the importance of that and how that translates to better research. I ask how we can think of Eduoptimumk beyond any single one of these pieces, in particular moving out of academia and into everyday life. Ivan's response surprises me, but helps me solidify another, another meaning and application of Eduoptimumk. Well, unless Brady's been lying to me about being my friend for five years, I think it's like that's one of the one of the things that we get to practice every day. I constantly listen to what he's saying. He listens to what I'm saying. We formulate ideas. We reject some stuff. We take other stuff and use it for the benefit of as many people as we can think of. And like that's a factor in why he just said, when I go up there, I feel like home now. I can I'll bring up my camper and stay in my parents' my parents' yard during basing George Powell, right? That's the other side of it. This this doesn't have to be used for research. It was originally intended to market the uh, uh, two Mi'kmaq students to come to CBU, to come to Cape Breton University, because they were literally using it as a marketing tool to say, listen, we hear you, and when you come to class, we'll listen. There's a place for you here, and there's a place for your perspectives here. And we want you to know that. So here's this tool, here's this principle, here's this concept, whatever taxonomy or or, def, or word you want to use to describe it, we will listen and hear what you have to say, and we'll share with you what we have. I think that's one of the biggest pieces that I've taken away as well over the years is really um, because, I mean, Adoptimum, is considered sort of a guiding principle when it comes to to research. And there's, I think, an asserted effort for why it doesn't neatly fit into the box of methodology or theoretical framework or conceptual framework, because it is much more than that. And that it translates to who we are as people and, and the, the person-to-person relationships that we have um, when we are researchers, when we're not, when we take off that researcher hat. Um, and that really, like I said, translates into um, those meaningful relationships that you have with groups that you're working with, like Ivan said, you know, friendships that you develop, which I think increase that accountability piece, right? Because you're not just a researcher engaging in this project, you're a friend. Oh, I totally agree. And that, that first piece that you talked about where it was the, it changes everything. It in, It does. It changes everything. And its intent is to change everything for the better. It's literally in the, the the definition that Albert Marshall came up with, which is you take both eyes and use them to make a decision for the betterment of everyone. And so, yeah, that 
that would change everything, wasn't it? If everyone could think like that to say, I'd like to help everyone as much as possible with my actions. What a novel concept to be able to have that. And obviously that is scary because a lot of people are still in the, and they would probably never admit it, but they're still in that ego phase. If there's one thing you've come out of this episode with, I hope it's that Eduoptimumk exists outside of labels, outside of academia and research, outside of frameworks and papers, and it infiltrates every aspect of our lives. This makes it complicated and messy, and likely a lifelong journey in how we interact with others and make our day-to-day decisions. There's no prescription, to-do list, or recipe. It really seems to be about self-reflection and potentially having some uncomfortable conversations about power dynamics and positionality. Let's revisit why it's so important, whether you're a researcher or not. Let's revisit why it's important for how you want to live your life and interact, whether you're a researcher or not. Some of the key things I think that, and Ivan's touched on this, is, you know, when you think about who you are as a researcher, let's say, and, or who you are in, in this space when it comes to Optimum, it's really doing that critical reflection on those pieces that Ivan was saying, you know, the collaboration, the inclusion, and the sharing. Without that critical reflection on who you are in this space and how that informs the work you're doing, you know, and I'm coming to this as a settler researcher myself, like you won't necessarily reach the points that Ivan was saying about about that collaboration, inclusion and, and sharing. And so, you know, until you do critical reflection, there's going to be bias. There's going to be uh, different roadblocks that impact the research relationship there. And so what's really hard to do, but what's necessary to do is that critical reflection. Brady provides an example of how he's tried to draw attention to this in a course he's teaching. The first part of the course is just about how we define certain topics or certain subjects, because when you look at people coming together, let's say around, you know, sustainability. So we want to sustain something. And you come to a table and there's people around the table that have, you know, biases and intentions and goals and their own positionality, as you said. If you're not open and vulnerable and honest with those pieces that you bring to the table, then what kind of conversation are you going to have about, you know, let's say sustainability, for example, when it comes to trying to figure out what to sustain or how to sustain it? So how do we get to a place of common ground? without being open about what we bring to the, you know, metaphorical table. Um, so when it comes to why I say in my own sort of experience, I've sort of thought of Ada Optimum through how it impacts my everyday life. And I think this is sort of coming up a lot more recently now in in even sort of mainstream academic sort of discourse is really that that researcher bias or that researcher, um, the lived experience that we have impacts everything, right? Uh, research, our analysis, our discussion on how we do research, especially in this context when it, you know, it's it's so relevant to to do that self-exploration kind of constantly because it's dynamic, of course, and, and it changes, right? So. And that's the concept of umsunogama, which is all my relations. I am related to everything and everything is related to me. And if you can't fundamentally understand that there's no such thing as a impartial observer or a completely neutral existence, then you really can't get to understand Eduatmunk either. Umsutnogama 
when you say it, it's it's usually at the end of a ceremony or, or a prayer, and it, it affirms your connection to everything and everyone. And it's probably some of the first Mi'kmaq language that I ever learned. So it's it's something that's stuck with me. Like I I enjoy a smudge, and and usually a smudge ends with those words. Uh, as a as a personal ceremony, I like to end with those words. I told people uh, at one point that my worldview tells me none of you, and I was talking to researchers and scientists, that none of none of you people are actually an impartial observer. You are linked to everything and everything is linked to you. There is not a laboratory wall thick enough to stop what you're doing from affecting the world, to contain what you're doing from affecting the world, because you're literally doing something with something else and it must all connect. There's no such thing as unconnectedness. And so Eduatmunk is like a final piece. And a lot of the times it's shown as two puzzle pieces. It is like a final piece of the puzzle to let people understand that this is how we have cross-cultural collaboration and mutual understanding and positive outcomes. Let's hear some final thoughts from Ivan and Brady. Ivan highlights not only the willingness of communities to be involved if they can, but also the richness they can provide. He tells a brief story showing the importance of exploring the same context from other perspectives, often exposing relevant and timely questions that may not have even been on our radar to begin with. I, I want people to understand that when they reach out to community, if community has the time and the and the inherent capacity to help you, they want to help you. They want to see you succeed. And that's one of the benefits. The the richness of your work alongside them is something that they appreciate and find value in. I think people get the idea that if you reach out to a group of more than yourself, then your work ends up being something else entirely by no choice of your own but if you have an idea and you're willing to to share and and let other people help you uh break the idea as in like flesh it out then that is the benefit of from the community's perspective that's their benefit they get to help you enrich your work and insert what they want into your work it's like that's the the Raymond, Dr. Raymond Thomas, uh, Ivan White Sr. example, where Raymond had an idea. All he was doing was asking Dad for some materials. And Dad said, did you uh, think about, uh, are you going to study these three things with the materials that I'm handing you? And Raymond said, I am now, because I didn't even realize that I should try and answer those questions beyond the questions that I had to ask the data. Brady builds on these comments and provides a concrete example of how this currently applies in academia. His message is simple. Be open and trust the process. This is surely something that I've learned over my past decade in research. Things might not turn out as we initially thought, but it's important to keep in mind that our experiences and results will often be richer because of it. In an academic setting, you know, the supervisors, the tenured faculty, the vice presidents, the provosts, the people that have 
an, an amount of power, whether that's your supervisor or a grad student, uh, whether you have a certain portfolio within a university, there needs to be space for this to happen. And that I think as a grad student myself, when I first started this sort of journey was having, uh, you know, I was very, very lucky to have a supervisor at the time and still do for my PhD who is open to things maybe not meshing with what they may have initially expected. So to be open to that and to have a bit of trust, I guess, in that process to see that final result, which may mean, you know, a student taking an extra year or finding an extra little bit of funding to to do some engagement work and allowing those things to happen versus sticking to the tried and true and the status quo in those institutions especially and and even you know to the promotion and tenure committees who look at tenure files and and early academics who are uh, engaged in this sort of work that recognize the value of engaged reflective processes that may look different to a hard scientist who has X number of publications in this high-ranking journal and um, and to change what they look for in files when they look at uh, promotion and tenure and to see perhaps different things being done and to value that versus, again, sticking to that tried and true status quo. And if you are uncomfortable, that's probably a good thing. And to think about why you're uncomfortable and to to sit in that as opposed to go back to your comfort zone. What I find sometimes in, you know, whether it's a, a talk or or I'm listening to someone speak about it, is they it's like this like abstract concept of there's this like machine walking around, you know, causing oppression and alienating people and doing all this damage. And it's like actually it's just people. Like humans are making decisions actively or not making decisions actively, which is, you know, another form of action to continue the systems that oppress and that do this thing. And so what I think Ado Optimum does in this setting is recognize those those actions and, and that that harm that's caused and then make you accountable for your decisions. So you don't just get to live in that world of ignorance. We're getting away from science for science sake and moving into we just want to do better because we suck and the planet is dying and things are happening, you know, and and so to recognize that that's growing and that you can't just say, you know, I'm doing science because there's this small, tiny gap in this literature that I think needs to be filled. And here's, you know, that's not where the millions of dollars are going for researchers. Um, it's going to projects that uh, address real issues with real people in a real concrete sense. And that's, I think, a positive shift and where we'll see, you know, these sort of um, concepts like transdisciplinarity and others coming to the forefront in that we can't just be siloed anymore. We can't just be biologists. We can't just be sociologists. We can't just be anthropologists. And there needs to be this concerted effort to look at the bigger picture in the work that we do. In Brady's final story, he expresses disagreement with some of the terms and processes used in academia that insinuate that non-academic people are below others, and that in the work, 
In the work he's doing, these terms have actually been harmful to relationship building and don't reflect the approach that they want to achieve. That I that we recently experienced um, at a meeting, and this is one of the ways, I guess, how how this working within this space can help deconstruct some of those um, the the bricks and mortar, let's say, that were built, uh, you know, against other other folks and and othered uh, the academic sphere. Is, uh, is the term HQP, so highly qualified personnel, which in an academic setting is very common. You see it on funding applications, you see it in proposals, you see it in um, you know, training highly qualified personnel, training HQP, which uh, sort of colloquially, like it's sort of automatically added on to students, right? So like students, graduate students typically are seen as HQP and that's who you know, when you look at a at a funding proposal, they have an HQP training plan, and that means student training plan. And so there's this other ring of only highly qualified personnel are grad students or academics. And so in this space where we are, you know, engaging with community and, and they're part of the research team, so it's not just, you know, the researchers aren't just the ones that are affiliated with the university. The researchers are community members, they're leaders, they're um, chiefs. And so folks outside of the academe are also highly qualified personnel. I think it's a factor of um, most of society being built up to want to categorize. Like taxonomy is just another word for class. And the word class is not appreciated by most people who are classed by other people. So it's like that's that's what you heard Brady tell a story about a rejection of a class within the project and people were like no that makes zero sense what if my uh, uh uncle wanted to come down and talk Do, does he become a highly qualified person before are you considering him in this section are you considering the the, the children in our communities who are just entering the university system and like what what is that and so yeah it was rejected oh right and got changed one thing that I would add, and I think is relevant to that conversation when it comes to how Edo Optimum acts as that sort of final piece of the puzzle, is that it really, and maybe not final piece of the puzzle, but a piece of the puzzle, that um, that it does that work of of the unlearning and the relearning and the um, changes that we need to see, and I say we need to because we do, um, in sort of systems around academia and research and science broadly that um, that privilege certain knowledges or that uh, focus on certain worldviews that only tell a part of the story. And one thing, uh, and we've built, you know, academia looking, you know, through the ivory tower lens is sort of always seen as this kind of other in society that yet has this weird meta view of society and and starting you know breaking down those walls of realizing that academics are also just people and that people are part of society and that you can't like Ivan was saying you can't sit outside society and study it whilst being in society that's not you know and and so um what we're seeing is is richer analysis and richer research and science of folks who who explore that relationship of themselves in in research and and that's sort of key to Edo Optimum Our goal for this episode was to provide an introduction and background on the concept of Edu Optimumk by exploring two of our colleagues' journeys of self-exploration. 
I hope that their stories left you feeling inspired to reflect on your own positionality and the different identities that you may embody. In the next episode, we'll continue to explore what Eduoptimonk looks like in practice by chatting with researchers and facilitators of the Abonomoltultig research project in the Bay of Fundy. This project is a positive, realistic example of Eduoptimonk within a research scope. As this episode was put together with the sole intention of learning, we're pleased to share that groups across Memorial University of Newfoundland have already noted that they will be asking their students and staff to listen to this episode and explore the resources in the show notes as a part of their participation in various collaborative research projects. As a way to encourage each of them to continue or embark on a lifelong journey, to understand and explore their unique positionality and how it may impact our interactions, whether in research or in life in general. The new Marine Biomass Innovation Project is one of these groups who will be supporting the reflection and training around Eduoptimunk. They're working to develop sustainable marine-based entrepreneurship for local industries and community-based organizations through the repurposing of marine biomass in Newfoundland. Thanks for joining us. Coastal Connections is a production of Coastal Roots Radio through partnership with the University of Guelph and Memorial University of Newfoundland Grenfell Campus. To connect with the people you've heard from on this podcast, check out the show notes or connect with us online through Twitter at Resilience Rural or at Coastal underscore Roots. Coastal Roots Radio is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada the Environmental Policy Institute at Grenfell Campus, and the Rural Resilience Research Group led by Dr. Kelly Vaughn.